0: Welcome back to my listeners. I am Harriet Hendel, and this is Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio, part of the Radio Ear Network family. During this very unsettling time, listening to podcasts is a way to shrink the distance between us all. As we broadcast today, I encourage each of you to follow the guidelines by adhering to social distancing and washing your hands as much as you can. We've been talking a great deal on this podcast about innocent people behind bars. As we watch the coronavirus creep into every corner of our lives, I think of so many people I am in touch with who are incarcerated, and so many, I don't know, who are in harm's way. I hope with all my heart that the prisons do their best to mitigate the effects of COVID-19. Our guest today is a friend of mine. Her name is Janet Hygens. She spent much of her life in business, and in 2014, she began writing a series of mystery novels. The first book was called Wrongful Conviction, and the second one was called Snook Wallow, and the third was Casperson Beach. And now she's working on book four janet took a class that i taught several years ago which was called locked up justice denied and that's how we met janet it's wonderful to have you as my guest today
1: well thank you harriet i'm honored to be part of the podcast
0: well that's great before we talk about your books can you tell us more about your interest in the criminal justice system and specifically why wrongful conviction?
1: Certainly. Um, at the time that I started writing Wrongful Conviction, my son was in school, law school up in New York and had just secured an internship with the Manhattan Prosecutor's Office. So we used to talk about his experiences uh, fairly often, and he was really drawn to the criminal justice side of of law. So that was going on in the background. I, that heightened my awareness of all things criminal justice uh, mm-hmm. that I was hearing and seeing around me. And my eye was drawn to an article in our local um, Sarasota paper. They were running a series of articles about a gentleman, whose name is James Joseph Richardson, who had just been exonerated after spending 21 years in prison for the murder of his seven children. Oh. It was a heartbreaking story and it just gripped me. The, um, the topic then piqued my interest and I started to research a little bit more about wrongful convictions the frequency of them, and the cause of how somebody could lose 21 years of his life after the tragedy of having lost his whole family, really. And um, so the idea was born that perhaps I could fictionalize the story of this gentleman and um, bring it to market as a writing exercise, really. Um, interestingly, I was picked of the book was finished, I was picked up immediately by a publisher. So that led to where I am today, really. It, uh, the series was born. Now, mm. if I could just, Harriet, I think it's really important to highlight this, this terrible tragedy of Mr. Richardson. He was convicted back in 68. The seven children had been murdered by having their lunch poisoned. <sighs> and he was a mentally challenged, individually worked as a farm laborer. And this happened when he and his wife were both working in the fields. They came home to find the children suffering. And um, of course, he was considered the key suspect right from the start. The police were determined to convict him, and he wasn't really in any position to either hire good legal representation or defend himself intellectually. At the end of the day, he was convicted, he's a black man, he was convicted by an all-white jury. Um, The judge was white, the prosecutor was borderline abusive to him. There was evidence of police misconduct after the fact. The nail in the coffin was that a jailhouse snitch said Hmm. that Mr. Richard. Richardson had confessed to him in prison, and um, at the end of the day, it took a very long time, but in 1970, an investigator, Mark, Mr. Mark Lane, picked up the case and um, started digging, but then it took years, years later, for him to be able to prove that Mr. Richardson didn't uh, commit the murders. The only way he was able to do that was the babysitter on her deathbed in 1988. So 20 mm-hmm. years after he'd been sent to death row, um, the babysitter confessed to killing the children. She had a thing oh. for Mr. Richardson and wanted the kids and the wife out of the way. And this okay. was her way of doing that. Wow.
0: What a I case. know.
1: Just, oh, it was just awful.
0: And where, where did this, um, the, uh,
1: Where did it happen? Yeah, where did it happen? It happened in DeSoto County, Florida, not far from where I live. Mm -hmm. It um, it was one of these situations where Tiny Town um, didn't get a lot of national press at the time, only became an issue at the point when he became exonerated. Now, the other thing that just breaks my heart is he did file um, a lawsuit against DeSoto County and ultimately, ultimately settled for $150,000. Now, shortly after that, <laughs> yeah, it, it was the reason he was convinced to settle was because the prosecutors have immunity from lawsuits. Mm-hmm. Right. And so he was convinced at that time that this was the best they could do for him. Following that in 2000. 2000- 2014, when Florida was reevaluating their compensation laws for wrongfully convicted uh, people, he was awarded 1.2 million dollars, oh, and that was back in in 2014. Here we are, 2020, and to the best of my knowledge, I I looked it up again just yesterday. To the best of my knowledge, he has not yet received the money.
0: He has not yet received the money. Now, not, who who yeah. who filed for compensation for him? The lawyer that had represented
1: him? Correct. This was Mark Lane who Mark ultimately Lane. filed for the compensation. Yes, yes.
0: And there's there's no reason given why the money has not gotten to him as yet?
1: No, and again, I can't confirm that. It's just that from all the research that I've done, um, looking, you know, high and low through the internet, everything I see says to date he's not yet received the money. That doesn't mean that he hasn't, but, mm-hmm. you know... That's that's the all I've been able to find is that there's no evidence that it's been paid. Now, um, Mr. Richardson now lives in Wichita, Kansas. He was a little bit lucky in a way throughout this entire ordeal. He was originally a convicted um, and sent to death row in Florida. And then along the way, the Supreme Court ruled that um, the death penalty was unconstitutional. So he was removed from death row. And they did reinstate that a few years following, but had they not declared the death penalty unconstitutional at that time, Mr. Richardson may well have been put sure. to death. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Yeah. yeah. That's uh, that's right. And mm-hmm. you we we talked about um the possibility of your telling us a little bit more about your um, research into the death penalty. Um, yeah. Do you want to tell us what you learned? I, I did some sure. research of my own, but go
1: ahead. Oh, I'm, su- I'm not surprised, <laughs> Harry. I'm not surprised. <laughs> yes, in my second novel, which is uh, Snook Wallow, I did decide, in the first novel, it is a fictionalized version. In Wrongful Conviction, there was a man who was, a black man who was convicted of of killing his two children with poison. Uh, from there, uh, and there was a jailhouse snitch involved. But from there, the the truth separates from fiction. And um, I didn't really put the the victim on death row in that book. When mm-hmm. I, I came to the second book, since I'd done an awful lot of research on death row, I thought, well, I'm going to have my second victim on death row. So I I did write in Nogualla, the case where somebody was sent to death row in Florida. Um, like the shock that I had when I was looking into the Richardson case, I was completely floored by the death row situation in Florida. We're the second highest death row state. We now have three hundred and forty-one prisoners on death row. Florida is aggressive in executing. Um, the only, con- the only. Th- State that has more prisoners on death row is California. They have 737, but California has not executed anyone since 2006. So Florida brings them in. They There is a, a great deal of time that passes on average before executions are held. In fact, the average is something close to 30 years. But yeah. still, um, Florida ranks very high, both in... Terms of the numbers of people on our death row, and the numbers of people that we execute. Right. right. If you are on death row, first of all, uh, there's no air conditioning. Cell sizes are six feet by nine feet by nine and a half feet. Very, very, very small. There's no smoking allowed. They're allowed to shower every other day. They're counted every hour, so there's a, there is no uninterrupted sleep. For- these people. Mm. They're handcuffed every minute that they're outside of their cell. They are allowed five hours of fresh air per week, and um and they they have a choice, if you will, between lethal injection or the electric chair in terms of the execution method. Um for entertainment, they have a 13-inch black and white TV in their cells, and they Are allowed magazines and letters; they can correspond, but there's very little human interaction. It's, for all practical purposes, solitary confinement.
0: Right,
1: right. Yeah, yeah. I know. It's 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 absolutely unbelievable. Now, nationwide, there have been 166 death row exonerations since 1973. 166 people could have been executed wrongfully, which has got to be the ultimate shock. You know, I, it just gives me chills thinking about, about it. Um, the Supreme Court gets involved from time to time nationally. In 2002, they declared it was unconstitutional to execute mentally retarded people. In 2005, they ruled that it was unconstitutional to execute anyone under the age of 18. And then in 2016, they stepped in to um, affect the Florida sentencing rules. Now, again, I covered this in a fictional way. But when I found this out, it just I just couldn't believe it. In Florida, a person could be prior to this 2016 Supreme Court decision. It was possible for a jury to come up with a majority, a simple majority vote with regard to sentencing somebody to death row. So seven out of 12 people could send somebody to death row, even if five of people on the jury felt that that was unjustified. On yeah, it didn't have
0: to be unanimous, which is shocking. Co-
1: It is shocking. So I did incorporate that in my second novel because at the time that was still the rule of the land. But since I'm very, very pleased to say the Supreme Court has knocked that down. And at this point, there are people sitting on death row who were sent there in Florida who were sent there with this simple majority rule um, who are now a little bit up in the air as to what the disposition is going to be. Mm
0: -hmm. I see,
1: yeah,
0: yeah, wow. and the mm. the uh, cost, um you you went deeper uh, than I didn't, and this is really uh, so informative. Everything you've just said, the cost is in, and i I stuck to Florida as well because I mm-hmm. thought that would be most interesting since we're both right here. Right. Um, the cost is fifty one million dollars to enforce the death penalty. So people say, you know, um, it, it, uh, it's much better uh, than uh, life without parole, but, but really not because of all of the appeals and the years and years and years that someone could be on death row. And that's, that's, that's costing the state uh, to keep them in prison. So you were saying about how long someone can sit on death row. Um, there's a man I would have loved to have interviewed on this program but he was actually too busy to to talk to me Um, and he is from Alabama he wrote a book uh, his name is Anthony Ray Hinton and he was on death row for 30 years waiting to be executed so uh, that that is um, so disturbing that someone can sit on death row in the kind of conditions you describe, the size of the cell, the little bit of recreation per day, the lack of contact with human contact, um, and and live like that for thirty years. And but above that, what if they are
1: innocent? Right. Absolutely right. Yeah. Now it's um, again. I write fiction, and the protagonist is working with a a law firm that is fashioned after the innocence project, but I call it something different. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Now, the reason I took literary license here really, the reason I did that is because I know for a fact that the Florida Innocence Project does not take death row cases. Am I right?
0: That is correct.
1: And my understanding is that they don't take them because these people that are on death row constitutionally get legal assistance and it does correct. drag on for 30 years, you know, on average. Yeah. Is that right also? That, yeah, that's correct. It, we right.
0: The Innocence Project does not get involved because they are entitled to counsel. Yes.
1: That's right. Exactly. That's but, you know, for literary purposes, I, I allow my protagonists to get involved, even though they're working for an Innocence Project-like legal firm. Right, right. So,
0: okay. Now, speaking of the Innocence Project, of Florida... Do you have any connection uh, to them at all? Well, you are my connection.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And uh, and again, you know, I looked into them quite extensively because since I was creating a fictitious legal organization, um, I structured a lot of what goes on in my books. After the Florida Innocence Project, you know, staffed minimally, uh, swamped with petitions for assistance, and if I'm not mistaken, it's something like what are the numbers, Harriet? Is it like 1,200 petitions per year that they get? Approximately, at least between a 1, and 1,200 letters per year. Yes, and you know they're they're um, they don't have a lot of money to staff the organization. They depend greatly on students, law students who are doing internships. And one of my characters is an intern with a law firm, so that
0: oh, that's great. That yeah.
1: dovetailed very <laughs> nicely.
0: Very, very true. The the main source of uh, money, the Innocence Project of Florida does uh, get grants from the Florida Bar Foundation Mm -hmm. and also the Department of Justice. But I think the the lion's share of the money that comes in is through fundraising. Um, They've really stepped up uh, events in different parts of Florida. Something that Uh, we had not done before. And it makes Mm -hmm. a great deal of sense because if there's no one, uh, or shall I say the other way around, for the longest time, I was the only member of the board of directors uh, here in Sarasota. So the offices are in Tallahassee. And so what we are trying to do is find out where the various board members are in the state Mm -hmm. and try to have a benefit in those areas. And that does two things, raises awareness and raises money. So uh, we've done two big events here in the last um, two years, I would say, and then they're sprinkled throughout Florida. So I, I think that's a great way to do it, is to bring in bring in people um, who get uh, an education. Often our exonerees are present at these benefits, and then of course, to bring in funds. So that's Wonderful. that's how, how we do it. Um, one of the things that I thought you would um, like to do is to highlight uh, some of the major contributing factors of wrongful conviction that you then fold into your books.
1: Sure. I've already mentioned uh, snitch testimony, which is um, becoming less and less of a major issue because the the prosecutors and the legal system at large is recognizing that this is really not a trustworthy source of testimony. Um, And that's the one that I used in my first book. The number number one issue currently is eyewitness error. Uh, This fascinates me, and and it's as from my research, I've learned that it's not uncommon for a white witness to misidentify a black suspect. And so I did incorporate that in my third book, Casperson Beach, where totally, um, you know, uh, innocently, somebody points to a man in a photo that they call them six packs. So the police will produce six photos of individuals that Are all similar in looks and if the person sees that photo and picks it because often they try to please the police and so they'll pick one that looks the most like who they think committed the crime who they witnessed doing the crime and psychologists have found that once you do that that image fixes in your brain and it's very hard to shape shake it even when it's proved that that is not the person who actually committed the crime. And there's a wonderful, wonderful nonfiction book. If I can give a plug for a book. <laughs> oh, that, that would be I th- great. I just think so highly. There's a book called Picking Cotton. Right, one of my and favorites. <laughs> I know. You're the one who first Love put it. me on to yeah. it. It's just a wonderful book. And it it covers, it's a nonfiction, uh, absolute true, true tale of a man, Mr. Ron Cotton, who was to be the perpetrator of a crime Uh, turns out that he in fact wasn't and it's Jennifer help me here Harriet I should know this right off the top of my head the author was
0: Jennifer Thompson
1: that's it Jennifer Thompson and at the end of the day something short of a miracle occurred the two of them became friends after Ron Cotton was exonerated so and I believe that they they do fair number of traveling across the country. They do um, speaking on behalf of wrongful convictions and supporting innocence project uh, you know, organizations. So right. so eyewitness error is the number one at this moment. the number one reason for wrongful conviction. Uh, others on the list: they're government misconduct. What do you I mean, mean by
0: government misconduct?
1: Well, oftentimes. A prosecutor will be so intent on winning, and I'm not casting dispersions on anybody, but it is proved that this does happen. They become very competitive, and they might cut corners, or they might withhold evidence, or they might twist evidence to try to uh, turn the case in their direction. So that would be an example of government misconduct. There is suppressed evidence, which is goes hand in hand sometimes with that. The it is the obligation of the prosecutor to submit evidence to the defense counsel. And sometimes papers go missing or the evidence isn't handed over. And I, I also deal with that in one of my novels. Um, and then there's junk science, quite interesting. The it used to be some of the tactics that they used in the past were just bizarre. They would have um, a dog identifying evidence, you know. Um, a lot of it's been debunked, but junk evidence, junk science, if you will, is still out there. Fortunately, with DNA being more and more accessible, many people who are being exonerated are being exonerated through evidence that has, been, has had DNA trace um, after the fact, after the conviction. Uh, and sadly, it takes money to do that. The onus is on the convicted. And if they just don't have the funds or the knowledge or the resources to pursue that, uh, then, you know, they just uh, aren't able to prove their innocence until an Innocence Project organization comes along and, and does it on their behalf.
0: Right. Well, we are almost out of time for today, but I hope you will come back so we can talk some more about um, some of these major contributing factors of wrongful conviction that you incorporate in your books and uh, educate our listeners just a little bit more. So would you be willing to do that?
1: It would be a ple- pleasure, Harriet. Yes, right. Thank you very much.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. All right. We will see you next time on Pursuing Justice, and uh, talk some more. And thank, thank you for listening today. We'll see thank you. Next, you. See Bye. you next time. Bye. Bye.